You are now listening to the June 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace, and begin our program with Christianese 101. My name is Grace, your host for the Christianese 101 program. Is there a biblical story that pops up in your head when you hear the word wilderness? When I think of the word wilderness, there are a few stories that come to my mind. The first story is the story of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. The second story is of John the Baptist calling out in the wilderness to repent and to prepare for the Lord's coming. And the last story that comes to mind is of Jesus fasting for 40 days and being tested by Satan in the wilderness. Today's word in the Bible, we will be looking at the word wilderness, which is often used in the sense of test and discipline. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 to 3, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now can you guys understand why he allowed the Israelites to live in the wilderness for 40 years? It was to train them and to have them depend only on God. Just as God led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, He will make us into His holy people. Through the wilderness, the training to divide the world in a holy life begins there. In times of hardships where we don't have anyone to depend on, or when we are not able to accomplish something with our own strengths, we start to confess to God and look for Him, which is training us to only depend on Him. The dictionary defines wilderness as an abandoned area. In Hebrew, it is translated as midbar and means badland, roughland, and desert. The book and the Bible called Numbers, which recorded the training period of Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai, Arabah, and Moab, is translated to bar midbar in Hebrew, which means in the wilderness. It is likely that the title came from the first verse in Numbers, but the title also shows that it is a recording of the lives of the Israelites when they were trained in the wilderness. Another word for Midbar is Dibar. This shows that the holy place where God was present in the Old Testament is derived from the word wilderness. The Israelites received the law from God through their lives in the wilderness, and the nation's identity was established through the sacrifices and feasts. The time they spent in the wilderness was a time where they experienced God's grace. Thus, as children of God, wilderness is a place where we listen to God's word, obey the word, and experience his presence in order to become mature in him. At church, we often hear that we should live a life as if we are living in the wilderness. And I agree with that statement. As we see the lifestyle of Israelites in the wilderness recorded in the Bible, the wilderness is a place where we are nurtured, trained, tested, but at the same time it is also a place where we can have an intimate relationship with God and experience His presence and grace. Do you feel as though your life is a life of one living in the wilderness? Please do not complain if you feel as though your life is of one living in the wilderness. Remember that God wants to get closer to you through the wilderness, and I hope that you receive this training with joy. And I will end this session with that. Have a good rest of the week and hope to see you next week.
my heart like you do I could search for all eternity long And find there is none like you There is none like you No one else can touch my heart like you do I could search for all eternity long And find there is none like you Your mercy flows like a river wide And healing comes from your hand Suffering children are safe in your arms. There is none like you. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I can say. Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Today we are talking about blame. You know, blame is this idea that I'm going to hold you responsible, usually for something that I did. And it's rarely a good thing when this happens, right? Well, think about it. What happens when I blame you for a certain behavior? Basically, I don't want to take responsibility for it. I don't want to admit that I've done something wrong, that I've made a mistake, or or that I've done something immoral. So the easy thing to do is for me is to deflect all of that wrongdoing onto someone else. And usually that someone else is the someone that I I love and I care for deeply. Remember that conversation between God, Adam and Eve, and and Satan in Genesis 3? It's called the the fall. Yeah, that that didn't go so well, did it? All that blame shifting, playing the blame game there. Well, we are going to learn from them, along with some other folks here, on what they did right and what they did wrong. And then most importantly, how we can apply these experiences 
to our lives personally. So blame is our topic for the next three days. This is part one of three and comes from a teaching series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, this bondage, or this addiction to pornography. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how someone will always be blamed as you move through the trigger of justification. Number two, how someone is going to be the victim of my sin without exception. And number three, when you commit a moral crime, the law demands justice. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is titled, It's Not My Fault. Father, thank you for the silence. Thank you for the quietness just to still our minds and calm our hearts. For many of us, it's the the first time that we've had just a few minutes of silence all week long. Lord, you've given us eyes to see, ears to hear. You have renewed our mind. And I pray, Father, that we are, are listening to you. You're the great counselor. You're the wise one. And you live and you dwell inside of us to lead us and guide us. And I pray, Lord God, as we open up your word tonight, that you continue to do so. All righty, guys, take a look at the, uh, the spiral itself on the first page of your binder there. So once again, as a very quick review here, trigger number one is the awareness. What am I going to do when I'm first aware that I'm susceptible to sexual sin? I've got three choices, right? I can pray, I can flee, I can confess. If I don't do that, then I I move down into trigger number two, unhealthy thoughts or shame, and I start living my life and making choices out of whatever whatever goes on in my head, that I'll never be good enough, that I'm I'm a wounded person, so of course I'm going to make choices, or it's somebody else's fault. That's how I continue to live life. Temptation is number three, the desire to actually commit the sin. Trigger number four, I'm going to resist a little bit and, and then finally give into it by talking myself in, into the sin itself with rationalization. Everybody else is doing it. I need a little relief. It's only this. I'm a pretty good guy. I move into hiding for the sole purpose of committing the sin. And then I act out in the sin itself with trigger number seven. Once I do that, I uh, relationally withdraw from people because I'm mad at people. I'm mad at myself. I'm mad at God. And then I justify my, my behavior. And now we're on trigger number 10, blame. So I justified my behavior and now I'm going to start blaming people. Key point number one on your worksheet When we move through the step of justification, someone will always be blamed. Key point number two, someone is going to be the victim of my sin without exception. So pause and think about that. Think about this idea of a victim. A victim is someone who has been harmed by someone else, right? Sometimes we hear this thing of of victimless crimes. And by its own definition, that's an oxymoron, right? It doesn't exist. Um, a crime is an, it's an offense against someone else. And many, many people believe that pornography is a victimless crime. Prostitution, victimless crime. So why do we believe that? Yeah. It goes back to rationalization, doesn't it? If I'm not hurting anybody, you know, I can, I can pull these images up. And she gets paid a lot of money to do that. She wants to do that. She likes to do that. It's just not addressing the real issue of the sin itself. It just keeps me inside the spiral. Because at the end of the day, I just want to do it. I'm just going to continue talking myself into doing these things. Now we're going to move into kind of a a mindset with this trigger, this mindset of condemnation. I'm going to condemn. I'm going to blame. I'm going to reprimand. I'm going to rebuke. I'm going to, I'm going to find fault with you with my wife, with my kids, with my employer, anybody that I can see, I'm going to find fault with them, or I'm just going to find fault with myself. I'm going to blame myself. 
So key point number three, when you commit a moral crime, when you commit a moral crime, the law demands justice. And then key point number four, sin also demands justice. So sin is any failure to conform to the moral law. So just think about the rebellion that we have against God, right? Um, so sin doesn't include not just lusting or stealing or, or doing all of those behavioral type things. Sin is also the attitude. It's also my desire, my lust. Once again, as you look at this, at this spiral, just like we talked about in trigger number seven, it's not just the acting out that's wrong. Right? And that's where most books start. They start, okay, they're going to show you how to stop doing what you're doing. They're going to teach you to manage this sin. And it's what, I, what I'm showing you guys here, it's not just this. It's the whole thing. Exactly. That's the whole point. You've had six opportunities to exit the spiral, and most people are going, okay, we're going to start here. There's no way that you can, not with all this sexual tension and buildup, are you actually going to start there? I had a couple in my office this week, premarital uh, counseling stuff, and I, uh, I said, you guys having sex? No? You sure? Well, oral sex. <laughs> oh, so oral sex isn't sex? You guys got to knock that off, because you're going to end up having sex before you're married. You can't stop. You can't continue to have oral sex and get that far and not have sex. That's the whole purpose of getting riled up. But even then, I was like, can I show you something here on this little diagram? No, you're not going to be able to stop. And they wanted to justify and blame and spin. Oh, well. So when it comes to this trigger, we've got two options in the middle of your worksheet. We've got two options when it comes to blame. Number one, you can accept the responsibility and the consequences of your actions. You can accept the responsibility and the consequences. Remember we talked about in trigger number seven, the actual acting out. It's basically that tsunami wave that is getting ready to come, right? So the, the, the sea floor shifts. You have an underwater um, earthquake, and all of a sudden you've got this massive wave coming. You can't manage that. You're just a fool to think that you can manage this destructive power and and if you if you youtube some of those tsunami waves you can just see its wrath i mean a, a life preserver isn't even going to help you i mean this thing is coming so fast it's going to slam you up against a wall i mean you're you're just dead but you can take responsibility for your for your actions and they're painful right we've all been through that kind of pain um, so you can either accept the responsibility or number two you can actually blame others which is what we tend to do. And notice the bullet point right underneath that is that could be yourself. And if you're doing this, then that means that you're working inside your own woundedness. I'm blaming myself. Well, of course I just did it again. It's what I always do. This is who I am. I'm never going to change. This is, this is as good as it gets. And if you've got those thoughts going through your brain, I would just want to encourage you and go, those are lies. Those are just flat-out lies straight from hell that you have a choice to stop believing them. It is for freedom that Jesus Christ, right? It's for freedom. So why do we go back into a yoke of bondage? We choose to go back there. It's actually easier to move back into a state of dysfunction because we're used to the dysfunction. But when we take a step towards holiness, all of a sudden it's unknown and it's scary because we don't know how to experience that, so we get scared and we step back into dysfunction. And we would actually, this is really scary, we would actually rather live in dysfunction for most of our lives than take a step towards holiness and stay there. Because we have this illusion of control inside the dysfunction. I can kind of control, I can kind of lie my way around my wife, I can kind of control my kids, I can kind of do this at work, Life's good, right? I would say, uh-uh. 
Why is life not good? Well, because of the illusion of control that we hold on to, especially when it comes to recovery from habitual sin like pornography. We don't want to do certain things, especially when we begin. We don't want to go to counseling. We don't want to go to group. I don't want to read a book, and I certainly don't want to journal. I don't want to write anything. We also don't want to be told how to do those things. So you know what? It's just easier for me to blame you for all of my problems, thinking that my life would somehow just, it's just magically going to change overnight if I don't do something different. But you know what? At the end of the day, we still have our eyes on ourselves. When we get into this mode of thinking, it's all about us. We've got our eyes on our sin rather than our Savior. And when our eyes are not on our Savior, man, that's when things get sideways really quick. When the very foundation that we're standing on is wrong, it's fantasy, it's an illusion, then nothing can be built on it. Our lens through life is not based in reality. See, we're just deceiving ourselves. We are being misled to how life is truly to be lived. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. This is from a version of the Bible called The Voice. Those people who are listening to me, those people who hear what I say and live according to my teaching, well, you are like a wise man who built his house on a rock, on a firm foundation. And when the storms hit and the rain pounded down and the waters rose, the levees even broke. The winds beat all the walls of that house, but the house did not fall because it was built Upon the rock. Those of you who are listening and do not hear, you are like a fool who builds a house on sand. And when a storm comes to his house, what will happen? Well, the rain will fall, the waters will rise, the wind will blow, and his house will collapse with a great, great crash. Well, the great news is that we have a choice. We always have a choice. We can build our house on the rock or we can build it on sand. We can exit this sex spiral by fleeing the situation, by confessing sin or praying to our Savior God, Jesus Christ. And we can stop blaming other people right now. It can start today. And we can also stop blaming God too. You know, knowing our options, realizing where we are in this spiral is huge. You don't have to keep doing what you've always done. So let's talk about options when it comes to protecting you and your family from allowing pornography into your home, your office, and your church. If you don't have a current filtering software system that blocks pornography, there's accountability to what you're doing online, um, let me recommend Covenant Eyes filtering software. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's a grace group, and it's for everyone. Men, women, husbands and wives, single, divorced, everybody's welcome. You're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We are in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor, and you can email me your questions, DustinDanielsRadio.com. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that is my prayer for you, is to live in the Holy Spirit power of Almighty God today. And that power is in the very name, it's in the shed blood of of Jesus Christ.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Faith and Work, based on Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 11, and verses 18 through 21. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. Just two things for me to underline that you know, emphasize that Aaron's already said. One is, please do make use of this thing this week. This is a way for you to uh, think through how you're going to participate in the Rise campaign. Be a great help. And also, sign up to pray on Saturday for our future, for the whole thing. Kathy and I are going to be praying uh, at our slotted times. Find a slot at time and commit to it and pray with us. Now, the Rise campaign is about our 10-year future, and so what we've been doing during these weeks is we've been looking at what the animating principles of ministry have been for Redeemer in the past and should be in the future, because what we call our core values, our vision, these principles stem from the gospel itself. And so we've put our core values into a statement, which is on our website and elsewhere. It goes like this, as a church of Jesus Christ... Redeemer exists to help build a great city for all people through a movement of the gospel that brings personal conversion, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal to New York City and through it, the world. Now, those, those four phrases that went right through there, the last one is cultural renewal. And what we believe, one of our core values, is that Christians are not supposed to only be Christians in their private life, but Christians are supposed to integrate their faith with their work in their public life. And we're supposed to let our faith transform our work so that it actually ends up having an effect on how human life is lived in the world, i.e. culture. Now, the passage you just had read, it's an interesting place to look to talk about work, is it not? And faith and work. When you first read through it, it seems like it's talking about the return of Israel from exile, that the exiles are coming home uh, to Jerusalem from all corners. And of course, this happened a couple of times. The Jews were in exile, the Israelites were in exile in Jerusalem, and they were brought back into the promised land. Pardon me, they were in exile in Egypt, and they were brought back into the promised land. They were in exile in Babylon, and they were brought back into uh, to Jerusalem. But if you actually read the thing carefully and probably you notice this. What is being described in as Isaiah 60 not only never really happened in human history, it can't happen in normal human history. First of all, you know all those names that you, know, you don't really know what they mean uh, when it talks about Sheba. And Sheba was as far south as anyone who read this knew. Nebaioth and Kedar were as far north as anybody knew. And what we're being told here is that all the nations on the earth are coming to Jerusalem and bringing all their wealth, their silver and their gold and their flocks and their, and their grain, and bring all their wealth, not because they've been conquered. This isn't because of tribute, which is the only way during human history that all the nations bring in all their wealth to one, to one place. It's not because they've been conquered. It tells you why. They're attracted. They're attracted by the splendor of the Lord. And we're told they come in verse in verse uh, verse six. It says they're proclaiming the praise of the Lord. In verse seven, they're bringing offerings. Uh, verse nine, it says to the honor of the Lord our God. And therefore, all the nations of the earth are bringing all their wealth into Jerusalem in praise of God. Not only did that never happen, how could that ever happen? And also. If you get down to verse 18, maybe you notice it near the end. It says, there's no more violence now. Uh, verse 20 says, there's no more sorrow. And of course, verse 19 says, there's no more sun and moon. And now you realize what's really being described here is the new heavens and the new earth. It's looking to the end of time when God makes everything right. And what it's actually describing is paradise restored. See, in the book of Genesis, we're told that God made the world a paradise, but that human beings 
decide we were going to live for ourselves, and we've ruined it. This is the restoration of that paradise. And the only way to really understand Isaiah 60 is to read it in light of Genesis, in light of Isaiah 60 shows us the promises of Genesis fulfilled and the curses and the breakdowns of Genesis reversed. So there's many things I could look at with you in Isaiah 60, but I'm just going to look at one. And it's actually so big that it kind of, it's like a lot of things that are so big you don't notice them. Have you ever noticed when you walk along 68th Street, there's actually a huge inscription on the back of Hunter College. I think I was preaching here for about five years before I noticed it. It's enormous. It's huge. I go into a door right underneath it and I never noticed it. I think it was in here five years. I said, what's that? It was so big. We don't notice it. There's many things sometimes too big to notice. And here's the biggest thing about this passage. What is this about? It's about the fact that all the nations of the world are bringing their work products. What is gold and silver? What is the flocks and the grain? It's the products of their work to God as offerings to God. And this means that just as there was work in the original paradise, there'll be work in the future paradise. And what does that mean about work? A lot. Let's break that down. Let's just notice what we learn here. And these are just hints, but they're, they're tantalizing hints. Three things. One is about the goodness and dignity of work. The goodness and dignity of work. Secondly, what's wrong with work? And then thirdly, how, how can it be healed? Right? The goodness and dignity of work, what's wrong with it, and how it can be healed. First, the goodness and dignity of work. Do you know almost all ancient creation accounts, there's lots and lots of ancient legends, different cultures about how the world was created and how things got started. And do you know that if you look at them, almost virtually all of them, in virtually all of them, work is a bad thing. Work is an evil thing or at least a demeaning thing. So for example, remember the old story about uh, Pandora's box? It's a Greek myth about the fact that in the beginning, I guess everything was fine and the gods gave Pandora a box and they said, don't open this box. And Pandora opens the box and out come all the things that are wrong with the world, including work is one of the things that's wrong with the world, according to that. Or for example, uh, there's a There's a story of the creation of the world called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish was a Mesopotamian story, myth. And the gods were told that the gods created the world. And then they realized, oh my, this is going to take a lot of work to keep up. It's a little bit like buying a home in New York. And uh, they made the, created the world. And now, oh my goodness, it's going to take a lot of work. So they decided to create human beings. Because work is too demeaning for higher beings. We gods, of course... Uh, can't have, can't do work. And Marduk, the leading god in the story, he says this. Marduk says, "Let us bring into being lowly, a lowly primitive creature, man. That will be his name. To him shall be charged all the labor, so that the gods may have their ease." So the idea that gods would take place, you know, do manual labor. Oh no, no, we create human beings for that. So in every one of these old accounts. Work is always a bad thing. It's a demeaning thing. It's not something that higher and nobler beings have anything to do with. It's one of the things that's wrong with the world. And then you get to the Bible. And it's a completely different story. Completely different. Because in the very beginning, we have God working. You know, in John chapter 5, Jesus actually says, my father has been working and I'm working. So here's God working, not only working, but doing manual labor. His hands are in the dust making us, you know, And when he creates a paradise, the Garden of Eden, where everything is beautiful and everything is blissful and everything is perfect, he puts work in there. In other words, as far as God's concerned, who we are is concerned, you can't have bliss, you can't have perfection without work. That's how high a view of work we have here. Work was put in the garden. That is to say, Adam and Eve were told that they were supposed to take care of the garden. God actually says, I want you to work it, he says, and cultivate it. And even here, by the way, in the new heavens and new earth, paradise restored, we have, look, where do you get gold and silver from? Mining, you get dirty doing mining and craftsmanship. What about the flocks? That's shepherding and the grain, grain, that's farming. Manual labor. And this is not only with something that God is doing in the very beginning and he creates us to do and it's a noble thing, it's a good thing, it's part of paradise when nothing is wrong with it. 
But it's part of the future somehow. It's incredible, is it not? In other words, years before Karl Marx, God was already a manual laborer. And when God came into the world in the form of Jesus Christ, he did not come like a Greek God would as an aristocratic philosopher, nor did he come as a Roman God would as a military general. He came as a carpenter. He came as a working stiff. You know, Kathy, my wife likes to always say, when we're talking about this, she said, you know, Jesus didn't go right into ministry. He didn't go into ministry until he was 30 years old. Before that, he made tables and chairs or whatever carpenters did. He had two careers. How much more dignity can the Bible give to plain old-fashioned work? Martin Luther, of all the Christian ministers and teachers, Martin Luther, I think, was maybe the best at drawing out the radical implications of what the Bible says about work. And they really are radical implications. So, for example, Martin Luther notices in the Bible, it says that God feeds every living thing. So, as in Psalm 145 and other places, God feeds every living thing. Okay, well, how does he feed you? He's feeding us. He feeds us. The food we have to eat, he's giving us. But it doesn't just appear on our plate. Then how does it come? The farmers grow it, and the drivers bring it to market. Martin Luther very famously said, the simple farm girl who's milking the cow, she is one of the fingers of God. God is feeding you through her. God is loving you and caring for you through her. You are being loved and cared for through other human beings' work and through your work, as simple as it is, God is loving other people through you. There's another place where Martin Luther goes and points out there's a place where... uh, I guess it's also in the Psalms where God says, uh, I strengthen the bars of your gates. Now, you know, a city gate was really, a city wall was necessary in those days to have a civilization, to have jurisprudence and to have, you know, rule of law and that kind of thing. You needed a, a city a wall and you needed a gate and strong bars. What God is saying is every society that is socially sound and secure, I'm making it that way. Well, Martin Luther says... How's God doing that? He says, through people who make good laws, people who enforce the law, through government officials, through politicians. These are the fingers of God. And see, all kinds of work, even the simplest kind of work, is a way that God is loving you and caring for you through the work of other people. Or if you're doing that work, God is loving other people through you. So for example, here's the simplest kind of work. Listen, either... Even though it's menial work, is it not? It's menial work and not particularly pleasant work. Somebody's got to clean your apartment. Either you're going to do it or you're going to pay somebody to do it. But either way, somebody's got to do that menial work or else what? If nobody ever cleans your apartment, you're going to die. You're going to get a disease. Bad things are going to happen. And so as menial as it is, it's one of the ways in which God is keeping you alive. See, the Bible says God sustains your life, but how is he doing? He's doing with whoever's cleaning your apartment, even if it's you. God is caring for his creation through work, and therefore, oh my goodness, the implications is all work, all kinds of work, is God's work and work that God is using to love his creation. Now, what are the implications of this? Some of the implications, let me give you four really quickly, real quick, but they're really important. Number one, We live in a city in which the kind of work that we valorize, we honor, it's the kind of work that everybody, what kind of job we always want. And that is high paying, lots of talent and technical skills required, changing the world. We we don't want a job unless it's changing the world. We don't want to clean apartments. We don't do stuff like that. And yet if your theology is screwed on straight, and I hope it is by a little bit tonight, all that class snobbery, all that... I have an educated professional job and this person just has a blue-collar job. That snobbery should be gone. If you understand what the Bible says about this, it should be absolutely gone. Jesus wasn't a professional exactly. He was a carpenter. He was a working guy. He was a blue-collar person. All that kind of snobbery ought to be gone if you're a Christian, number one. Number two, a lot of us, because of our own fears and anxieties or because our family is pushing us, a lot of us take jobs for the status and for the money, not because... It's a way of really using our gifts well or helping other people. No, no, we need the status, we need the money. We want the, we want the good job. 
And of course, a lot of us are pretty unhappy because we've been pushed by our own fears or by social pressure or by our families into jobs that are high status but actually aren't, don't fit us very well. If your theology is screwed on straight, you'll see that you shouldn't do that. Number three, here's another thing. If it's really true that God is actually loving people and loving and caring for his creation through the simplest kind of work, how, if in your work, whatever it is, how then can you please God? How can you do the most God-pleasing way of working? How can you do that? As a Christian, how can you work in a most Christ-pleasing way? The answer is just do your job really, really, really well. If you don't clean the apartment well, the person dies and you're frustrating the purpose of God for that work. You've got to do your job well. Or my favorite illustration, some of you know, my favorite illustration is, let's just say you're a Christian and you're an airline pilot and you say, how can I be the best Christian airline pilot possible? How can I be the most God-honoring airline pilot possible? And the answer is, land the plane. And land the plane in such a way that it can be used again. I mean, that's helpful. Right. Somebody told me the pilot has two goals. One is to land the plane uh, so that nobody dies, and the other is so that you actually can use the plane again for, the, uh, for another uh, return trip. And I'm not saying there's nothing more to it than that, but I'm saying just to do your job well, to do it really well. That pleases God. Here's one more, and it's very important. If it's true that what the Bible says about the dignity, importance, and goodness of work is, means that blue-collar jobs and white-collar jobs, we're not supposed to, as Christians, honor one over the other. We're not supposed to see the goodness and the dignity of all. But it's also true of religious and so-called secular jobs. There are plenty of places, plenty of churches, that give you the impression that if you really are sold out for Jesus, you're going to go into the ministry. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why people don't go into the ministry, and they don't go, they don't go into missions, or they don't work for churches and Christian organizations. One of the reasons is because it's not a good way to get rich. It's not a good way to have high status, and that's wrong. That, that, status, that motivation should be changed by what I'm telling you right now. If you get your theology screwed on straight. On the other hand, you've got to know this. You shouldn't go into the ministry because now I finally honor Christ, because honestly, you can honor Christ in every kind of work. In John chapter 16, it says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. So when I'm preaching the gospel to you, the Holy Spirit's working through me to convict you of sin and bring you to Christ. But I remember it now. Psalm 104, verse 30. It's a little bit like the, you know, the addresses in Queens, you know, avenues. Okay, that part of the Psalms is hard to get around in. Psalm 104, verse 30 says that the Spirit of God waters the face of the earth. God so cares for his physical creation that the Spirit of God is out there keeping it new. And that means the Spirit of God not only convicts people of sin, but also waters the face of the earth. And that means God can use me if I'm a preacher and if I'm a gardener or a farmer. Dick Lucas was a minister of the, in uh, Britain some years ago. He was a great preacher in, uh, in London. And um, I was listening some years ago to a recording he made of a sermon on Joseph. Now, you know... Joseph was a great hero of the faith. We learn about Genesis chapter 37 to 50 in there. But he was not a minister, a missionary. He became a great leader in the Egyptian government. He was a municipal leader. He was a, a civil magistrate. And this is what Dick Lucas said about it. I wrote this down because it was so striking. Dick says, quote, if you were to go up to a book table at a church and see a biography with the title, The Man God Uses, or The Woman God Uses, you would almost immediately think that it must be the story of a missionary, or a minister, or some specialist in Christian work like pastoring mission, leading Bible studies, or something like that. That is because the church conditioned you to think this way. But in fact, what you have here in Joseph is a highly successful manager. He's not a preacher, he's not a missionary, he's not leading a Bible study group. In some ways, being a preacher, missionary, or leading a Bible study group is easier because things are black and white. You know if you're doing it right or not. Out in the world, very often, there's a lot of gray. But here's what is important to know. It is hard to get Christians to see that God is willing to greatly use men and women 
in medicine, in law, in business, in the arts. This is the great shortfall today. So in other words, the importance and the greatness and the dignity of all work is enormous. But number two, point two and three, they're going to come closer together here now, is there is something wrong with work. Having said all that, there's something wrong with work. We find work exhausting. We find work frustrating. We find work difficult. Why? And to answer that question, we can actually, again, look at our text in which we see something fascinating. And that is, in, this, in the new heavens and new earth, everyone's bringing the, the fruits of their work. But it's interesting, all nations are doing it. Like I said, even though we don't know much about these names, but uh, when young camels of Midian and Ephi and Sheba and Kadar and Nabioth, this is all the Tarshish. These are all the nations of the world. And you know what this is? This is a reversal. Again, I said everything in Isaiah 60 is either a reversal or a promise from Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Now, if you go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, this is the story. Genesis 11 is about work. We often don't realize that. People came together to build this building, to work really hard, to build the highest tower, a skyscraper, as it were. And they came together to build it and to work, but why? Their motivation was, you can read it in Genesis 11, verse 4, to make a name for themselves. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. We're going to build the biggest building in the world. And we'll make a name for ourselves. Now that's crucial. Because what they were doing was they were choosing a motivation for their work. A reason for their work. They were going to build the biggest building. It's like, it's, we're going to do a killer app. Or it's going to be the very, very best uh, new software program. It's going to be the largest of this, the best of this, the greatest of this. We're going to change things. Everybody's going to realize nobody's done anything like this. And then I'll know I'm somebody. I'll have status, I'll have power, I'll have identity. I'll be the best. And that's Genesis 11. That's the Tower of Babel. Human beings decided to work for themselves. For their own glory. For their own uh, name. For their own identity. And remember what the result was? They came together. But here's the thing. If the reason for your work is your own personal advantage and your own personal advancement, I mean, of course, everybody who does a job, you do it for multiple reasons. You say, oh, I just love doing it. Uh, But what's the bottom line? Why do you take a job or not take a job? Why do you stay in a job or not stay in a job? If the bottom line, your main motivation is, it helps me. It advances me. It advances my status. It advances my income. If that's the main reason you work, the result is fragmentation. Because you can only make work the, the means of personal advancement by working. You're actually doing is you're working over against other people. You're working against other people. You're working. In other words, I want my name to advance. And you're doing that against other individuals, other groups. And the reason why Babel, when people said, I'm going to work for myself, I'm going to work for my own name and glory. Everything fell apart. That's where the the languages were confused, the various ethnic groups, the various classes, the various races, the various people. They couldn't work together. Now, what this means is here is different. The world is unified now. They're all bringing the products of their work together. It's the reversal of the curse of Babel. Why? It's the reason they're working. Why? I already read this to you. Verse 6. The reason why they work is to proclaim the praise of the Lord. The reason why they produce their wealth is in order to make an offering to God. The reason is to bring honor to the Holy One. When I see my work not as something I'm doing for myself, but for God, then that brings everything together. There's a healing. You say, how does that work? The best illustration I know of this, and by the way, I want you to know, I don't know much about this man. I haven't read his biography. I need to read about him. So I don't really know much about what he was like. But I do know what he said in this really crucial quote is right on and very important. John Coltrane, one of the great jazz saxophonists, maybe the greatest, his great album, A Love Supreme, has liner notes that he wrote. And listen carefully to what he wrote. 
He says, during the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. He said, wait a minute. Wasn't he trying to make others happy through music before? He might have told himself that, but now listen. Let me start over. So important. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music, to inspire them for living meaningful lives because there certainly is meaning to life. All praise to God. Now, profound. What is he saying? He is saying that before he had this incredible experience of God's grace, the music was basically about him. See, if you try to find your ultimate meaning through your work, if you say, well, I know I'm great because I'm great at my work. He says, what that does is that it means the work is about you. But when he found he was so filled with God's love that he could make his music an offering to God, suddenly his work wasn't about himself anymore. The music wasn't about himself. The work was about the music and it was about the listeners and it was about God. And when he offered up to God, because he wasn't getting a self and a sense of identity and self-worth out of his work, suddenly the work didn't become a way of salvation, a way of identity, a way of getting a name for himself. It became a way of serving other people. And if everybody in the world was working like that, it would be a radically different world. But basically, the curse of Babel lies on all of us, including it lay on him until he experienced that. And that is, what was he doing? He was doing it to make a name for himself. And because he was making a name for himself, he says, in hindsight, he wasn't doing it to make other people happy. He was doing it to give himself a self. He said, by the grace of God, when I realized my meaning is in God and not in my music, ah, it made the music a way for me to make other people happy. It became a way to serve people instead of, in a sense, use people. Oh, you must applaud me, and then I feel good about myself. No, I've got the applause of God, and now I'm here for you, not to use you to feel good about myself. And I got to tell you, even though, listen, I don't want to, I'm not trying to pick on musicians, musicians, by the way. It, we're not talking about just musicians in this situation. All people are like that. And it's only when you can turn that offering into your work, into an offering to God, and stop trying, in a sense, to earn your salvation. That work actually becomes something that doesn't enslave you. Mark Sluka, who is a uh, professor at Columbia University, in a, some years ago in Harper's Magazine, wrote a fascinating article about the fact that the, you know, the, many of the early settlers of America, especially in New England, were Puritans. And the Puritans taught about the fact that there were two ways to live. One was to live by the grace of God. That's what Coltrane was talking about. The other is to live in a covenant of works. And Slucas says, the covenant of works was meant you earn your salvation, you live a good life, and you work hard, and you obey the Bible, and then God accepts you because you have earned your way. And what Slucas said, of course, is that there was two ways to live. The Puritan said, one is you earn your salvation, one is you get it by grace. But here's what's interesting. Slucas goes on, on and says, Today we're secularized. Today we don't believe in heaven, at least a lot of people don't, or even God. But, he says, Americans are still locked in a covenant of works. This is what he says. He says, today's version of the covenant of works has substituted a host of secular pleasures for the idea of heaven. But nevertheless, we believe that the work of our hands will save us. And we believe it, and we repeat that daily catechism, and we sing in that choir until we are exhausted. See, the only way that work will not keep on ruining people, because, you know, if you, it's the curse of Babel. If you work for yourself, you're actually working in a self-serving way, and you're not using your work to serve other people. And it fragments the, popula- the world. The only way that work becomes a way of serving other people instead of just your personal advancement. And the only way that you yourself can find work not actually really harming you on the inside 
When you work and when success in work is the meaning of your life and your identity, you realize what happens. That when you are successful, it goes to your head and it gives you a big head and makes you arrogant. But if you're not successful, it goes to your heart and just devastates you and totally devastates you. So the only way that work's going to be healed and the only way that work's going to become a healing factor in the world is what? You're going to have to be able to get a sense of your identity, a deep sense of your worth, apart from work, and then come to work with that fullness, not an emptiness. And then and only then can work become a way of serving others. Well, how can that happen? Well, like this. I told you in the very, very, very beginning that when you first read this through, it seems like it's talking about people coming home from exile, doesn't it? And of course, that happened when the Jews came back from Babylon, when the Israelites came up from Egypt, it talks about lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come afar, from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. It's talking, it also in verse 9 talks about that. It's like your sons and your daughters, it seems like the exiles are coming home. But we've said that this is not just looking at the Israelites or the Jews coming home. Every nation is coming. Now, in the Old Testament, when God says to the children of Israel, I'll bring you out of exile into the promised land, he always says, I will bring you home and I will give you rest. Home should be a place of rest, right? You're out working, you go home to rest. And so when God says, I'm going to bring you out of exile into your homeland so you can rest, he's talking about deep repose, he's talking about fulfillment, he's talking about peace. But here, this isn't the Jews coming back to the promised land. This is all human beings coming home. And what is this talking about? This is not talking about the Babylonian exile or the Egyptian exile or any other exile. It's talking about the human exile. Back to Genesis. I told you, Isaiah 60 can only be understood in light of Genesis. In Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, God exiled the whole human race from the Garden of Eden. When we decided to live for ourselves instead of for him. What was the result? Exile. And what God said was to Cain, for example, he says, you're homeless now. You're going to be a wanderer on the earth. And the other thing he said, by the way, about work specifically, is he says, you're still going to work. I made you to work, but now work will be exhausting. Because when you work for yourself, it'll be exhausting. And he actually says, by the way, God, you know, the place where God says, You're going to try to till the ground, right? You're going to still try to work in the ground, but thorns and thistles will come up instead of grain and flowers. And the thorns and thistles represent why work is so hard and why it's so exhausting. And if you do work for yourself, and if you do work to try to make a name for yourself, and this is the way New Yorkers are trained to work, by the way, it will be exhausting. You will feel like a wanderer. You will feel in a way like, I I don't have any rest There's an exhaustion, a spiritual exhaustion of trying to kind of earn your salvation. Even if you don't believe in God, according to Saluka, we're all still trying to earn our salvation through our work. And it's exhausting. It's so exhausting that no number of vacations will ever heal it. But I can tell you what will heal it. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he came as a worker. We said a working stiff, but not only that, he came as a wanderer. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But more than that, when he went to the cross, he got the thorns. They were just driven into his skull. And he got an emptiness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't have rest on the cross. He didn't have peace. He had fulfillment. He had emptiness. He had cosmic restlessness. Why? What was he going through up there? What was he going through? What he was going through was he was getting what we deserve. He was taking the exile... He was taking the thorns. He was taking the homelessness, as it were. He was taking the wrestling. He was getting what we deserve for living for ourselves. He was taking our penalty for us so that when we turn to God and say, Father, I see what Jesus Christ has done for me. I rest in that. Accept me because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know what that means? You get your salvation apart from works. You get it as a gift. You get it as grace. And that's where you get the rest that you need to transform your work. You say, how? Just like this. Listen. Almost imagine Jesus coming and talking to you about your work. And here's what he's going to say. 
he'd say something like this. He says, if you work for yourself, you're going to be ground into the dust. You're going to be so exhausted. You're going to be always anxious. If you're not successful, it's just going to kill you. If you are successful, it's going to kill you too because it's going to puff you up and make you arrogant. If you work for yourself, it's going to grind you into the ground. Oh. But I want you to know that I worked myself to death for you, for your salvation. I love you. It was worth it. Now work for me. Don't not work. But don't work for yourself. Work for me. Because I'm the only master, I'm the only boss that won't grind you into the ground. Because you'll be working for me out of gratitude. See, when you know that Jesus Christ did that, he went to the cross and took the thorns and he did that for you. That, and if you believe it, and you have to believe it and you have to pray it into your heart. And when that love begins to envelop you, finally you'll be able to say, by God's grace, I had this experience of God's love And my work is not about me anymore. It's an offering to God and therefore a service to other people. And it's a joy. That will transform work and that will transform the culture and that will transform the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, our work's so important. We also know why it's broken, why it's hurting. And we also see that it's only because of salvation by grace, not by our works, that our work can be transformed. It's only by seeing the love and getting that affirmation deep in our hearts that we know who we are before we go to our work that our work no longer drives us and ruins us. So we thank you for salvation by grace apart from works. That is what changes our work. And through it, that is what will change the world. And we pray that you would make us into people whose work is not a matter of self-service or personal advancement, but that all of our jobs are vocations by which We're serving the world and being the fingers of God and loving the world and letting your love, O Lord, come into other people's lives through our work, and we pray that you'd help us to do that. So thank you for giving us this part of our vision. Thank you for this fruit of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.